And as we said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, starting in verses 13. So go ahead and find that in your Bibles if you haven't already. And we'll get started. Taxes. That's right, taxes. Now, there's a word that is never fun to hear. All of us have to pay them. None of us enjoys doing it. It was only a few short weeks ago that we all had to file our income taxes with not only the federal government, but the state government. Some of us had to pay, and some of us received a refund for overpaying. Why do we need to be paid taxes anyway, you might wonder? Well, perhaps this little interchange between Uncle Sam and someone we'll call Taxpayer Joe can help explain. So here's Uncle Sam. Hey, Joe, you owe us money. It's called taxes. How much? How much do I owe? Oh, Joe, you have to figure that out. Uh, So then I can uh, just pay whatever I want? (laughs) Oh, no, 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 Joe. My friendly IRS agents know exactly how much you owe, but you still have to figure out how much that is. And uh, what, 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 what what if I get it wrong? Uh, no problem, Joe. If you get it wrong, you just go to prison. <laughs> That's right, prison. When people don't pay their taxes, when they don't pay what they owe the government, very bad things happen. And that's what we'll discover today as we rejoin our trek with Jesus on his journey through the Gospel of Mark. What we owe the government is very important, but what we owe the one who established that government is even more so. So please join me now in reading Mark 12, starting in verse 13 through 17 in the English Standard Version. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. 
Now, it's important to remember where we are in the timeline of Mark. It's been a few short days since Jesus first entered Jerusalem to shouts of, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! You can read about that if you just turn a page back into Mark chapter 11, and you'll notice the first heading probably says something like the triumphal entry. That's the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and the crowds adulating him and essentially saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is the one who we believe is going to be the new king, the one to overthrow the Romans. And then as you go further on, you find out the reason Jesus is there is it's Passover time. It's one of the most important Jewish holidays of the year. But this particular Passover, it seems Jesus is the main attraction. Because after his triumphal entry, Jesus the next day goes into the temple and he starts to cleanse it by casting out all the merchants and overturning the tables of all the money changers. And as you can imagine, the rulers of the temple weren't all that happy with that, and they had to challenge him. So they, they came. They sent a delegation in 1127 of, of uh, Mark chapter 1127, and they, they come to challenge him, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. But it doesn't go so well. They try to outwit him, but he always outwits them. You can read about how Jesus responded to them when they asked him by whose authority they do this. He didn't answer directly. He gave them a parable. First chapter 12, the first 12 verses. You can read about that there and see that Jesus told them a parable of wicked tenants who were put in charge of God's vineyard, a vineyard odor's vineyard actually, but you can read through it, it's God. And at the climax of that story, the vineyard owner sends the son and the wicked tenants, rather than submit to the son, they kill him. And after Jesus tells that parable, the final verse kind of sums it up. These leaders, these chief priests, these scribes, these elders, are seeking to arrest him, but they don't because they, they're afraid of the people. For the leaders perceived that he had spoken the parable against them, so they left him and went away. But they had to catch him somehow. They had to snare him in some sort of trap. So we begin with our narrative today in verse 13. The trap, the trap is set. After their encounter with Jesus, they probably had this conversation among themselves. Where is this guy coming from? He hasn't been in our parts. He's not from around here. Oh, he's from Galilee, isn't he? Oh, that's right, Galilee. That's the territory ruled by Herod and his ilk. But we've heard a lot of stories about him from our friends the Pharisees who also are all over Galilee. They've kind of been following him around for quite a, quite a while now. 
Maybe they know how to get to him. Maybe they know how to set the trap. As a matter of fact, if you look back in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, you'll see that it's true. The Pharisees have been after Jesus for quite a while. In Mark chapter 3, there's a story where he's about to heal a man on the Sabbath, and he's daring the Pharisees. He's basically asking them, is it right to do so? And they, and they just stand back and watch. And sure enough, Verse 5, Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretches it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. That's the other group that's in our story today. The Herodians in chapter 3. And what did they do in this council? They held counsel how to destroy him. Way back in the beginning of his ministry, these Two Pharisees, these two groups, Pharisees and Herodians, have been out to destroy Jesus. So, knowing this, the current leaders in Jerusalem say, hey, let's, let's let the Pharisees and Herodians add him. They've been scheming to catch him for a very long time now. And so the leaders of Jerusalem enlist the leaders of Galilee to do just that, to entrap Jesus in his words. But how are they going to lure him? How are they going to draw his attention? Well, by flattery, of course. Listen to their very words of insincerity in our text. They say this, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion. If you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, every sentiment in those words is absolutely true. But the fact that they came from a group of people intent on Jesus' demise makes them ring hollow. Jesus sees right through that. And the gospel writer, of course, gives us a hint by telling us that their whole intent was to trap him in the first place. So we're kind of in on the secret, too. That doesn't mean the other people watching knew what was going on. So... With the Pharisees and the Herodians buttering Jesus up and thinking they have him right where they want him and eager to hear what they have to say, they zing him with a pair of carefully crafted questions. The Pharisees, the students of the law, probably asked the first one, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And then the Herodians in the background cheering on, yeah, should we pay them or should we not? Now, how is, how is this a trap? How can this pair of questions bring Jesus down? Well, in the minds of the Pharisees and Herodians, there were only two answers to that question, yes or no. And if Jesus answers yes, pay your taxes, the crowds listening to this interchange would be rather disappointed and would certainly turn on him. Remember, they're the ones who were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's the new king. And he's telling us to pay taxes to Rome? 
he would lose all his public support right there. And there's even a possibility that they would riot right then and there and perhaps kill him. But the other answer is also a possibility. What if Jesus decided to answer, no, 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 don't, don't pay your taxes? Now, he'd have the support of the crowd, and he might begin an insurrection against Rome, but that <clears throat> would be another certain death because Rome doesn't put up with people not paying their taxes. Back in those days, people didn't just go to prison. They, they got killed for that kind of thing. So, whether he answers yes or no, Jesus is trapped. The end of his ministry is at hand, or so they think. But, surprise, surprise, Jesus has an answer for them. In fact, he has a question for him. A series of questions for him. Why put me to the test? He asks and immediately exposes their motives. Their flattery hasn't fooled him. He sees right through their hypocrisy and is ready to expose it even more. So looking straight at them, he says, bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. Now this would have been a rather awkward request to make of the Pharisees who were not big proponents of Roman rule, not big fans of Caesar. From their point of view, the denarius was essentially an unclean coin and not something they would want to be seen carrying around. He's asking us for what? But fortunately, they had their buddies, the Herodians, on the other side, and they were just the opposite. The Herodians actually owe their very existence to Caesar because he set up their benefactor, Herod. He's just a puppet king. Rome's benevolence and entire rule was built upon the collection of taxes, and they were the ones who essentially benefited. So they probably had pockets full of these coins. So in short order, they produced one for Jesus to examine. And Jesus holds it up, examines both sides, and asks another question. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And as Jesus took a look at both sides of the coin that was just tossed to him, he would have noticed several striking features. First, he would have seen an image of the reigning Caesar, Tiberius. Roman nose and all. Second, he would have seen an inscription around that image that translates Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the back side, there's another inscription that essentially translates the highest priest. So with a pair of blasphemous inscriptions declaring this Roman ruler to be both the son of a god and the highest of priests, it would seem appropriate for the true Son of God and great high priest to publicly denounce such evil proclamations, or at least that's what the Pharisees were hoping. But Jesus doesn't fall for that trap. 
No, rather than play into their hands, he responds with the question and then turns the entire interrogation back on them. Whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they reply. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. With one stunning statement, he silences his enemies and puts them and everyone else listening in their place. For those blasphemous inscriptions of Caesar are no threat to Jesus. For Caesar owes his very throne, indeed his very existence, to the one true God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about it in his letter to the Romans, chapter 13. The very first verse says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And if you read further, you'll learn there's other exhortations in that section that actually tell us to pay taxes, just what Jesus said, backing it up, reinforcing this. Caesar's authority is a derivative of God's authority. God has instituted Caesar's very rule and reign. That makes Caesar subject to God. And furthermore, Jesus, the very Son of God, has authority over Caesar too. Caesar may not know it yet, but he too is subject to the God who has created him and to the Son of God through whom he and all other things were created. And that includes Christ's enemies, especially these Pharisees and Herodians. Notice how Jesus has turned the tables on them. Suddenly, he's the one issuing the commands, not them. He's the one telling them to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He is the one in control. They are the ones left speechless and amazed. Jesus has spoken with an authority they know to be true and one they cannot resist. For not rendering to Caesar is tantamount to not obeying God and Disobedience to God is not a good thing. And this same command, of course, has application for us today. Just as the people of Jesus' day were to submit to their governing authorities, so must we. I mean, there were pagan historians of the first century who wrote of this Caesar, Tiberius, kind of like our modern newspapers back then. They, they said of him, he's cruel, he's wicked. He's full of debauchery and a total disgrace of a ruler. Some modern historians sound kind of similar, making similar statements regarding our rulers today. But that doesn't negate the fact that God has installed them and granted them authority over our lives. In Romans chapter 13, verse 4, Paul even says that these authorities are God's servants for our good. Regardless of the character of our leaders, our civic, secular leaders, the clear command of Christ remains. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And render to God the things that are God's. 
And it is this oft-overlooked follow-on command that we now draw our attention. For of the two render two statements, this one we kind of ignore. But by far, it is the most important. When the Pharisees and Herodians posed their questions to Jesus, they intentionally left all mention of God off the table. They just wanted to get Jesus to take a stand for or against Caesar's taxation policies so they could, in effect, take him out of circulation. But here's Jesus bringing God into the equation, front and center. Not only are we to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, we are to render to God the things that are God's. Note the parallel, parallelism in that statement. The two statements sound so similar, and yet they're really not the same. I mean, Caesar's no God. He's a creation of God. He's a subject of God. He's a servant of God. But Jesus wants his audience to infer something about God from his statement about Caesar. His logic, Jesus' logic, goes something like this. There are things that exist that bear the likeness and inscription of, G, of Caesar, namely coins, as we saw. Those things are out there. Therefore, Caesar has the right to demand that those things that have his image be given back to him. Likewise, there are things that exist that bear the likeness and inscription of God. Therefore, God has the right to demand that those things be given back to him. In other words, <clears throat> we must render, or another word for that is give back to God whatever these things are that bear God's likeness and inscription. Why? We must do so because just as Caesar's image-bearing coins belong to Caesar, so God's image-bearing people belong to God. They're his. But who are these image-bearing people? Oh, the Pharisees would have known the answer to that question. Uh, they're experts in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. They would have known the words of the creation story by heart. Words that we're going to take a look at right now in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. And then later, so God created man in his image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So according to Genesis, in the creation story, every man and every woman has been created in the image of God. That makes every human who has ever lived an image bearer of the Lord God. So just as Caesar's coins bear an image or a likeness of Caesar... So every human being bears the image of God. And every human being reflects the nature of God. And every human being has the capacity to recognize and acknowledge and worship God. 
But at the most fundamental level, and at the level that matters in this argument, every human being was created by and belongs to God. And this is what Jesus was driving at when he told the Pharisees and Herodians to render to God the things that are God's. He was reminding them to whom they belonged. They were image bearers who belonged to God. And as such, they owed God something, something much more important than what they owed to Caesar. They owed their very lives, their very souls, their very hearts to the one and only Creator. And then when you stop and think about all this, this command to render to God the things that are God's is actually a remarkable demonstration of grace under these circumstances. Here's Jesus being challenged by two groups of people who are conspiring to trap him in his words and put an end to his ministry, and they are literally bent on his destruction. And how does he respond? Does he cut them off at the knees and waste them on a field of battle? No. Rather, he exposes their hypocrisy, he corrects their faulty ways of thinking, and he offers them a chance to change, a chance to repent. Render to God the things that are God's, O Pharisees. Render to God the things that are God, O Herodians. Jesus is pleading with them to repent before it's too late. And so it is with us. We, too, bear the image and inscription of God. We, too, are called to render to God the things that are God's. So how about you? What of yours have you been holding back from God? What have you not rendered to Him? Is it your anxiety? Are you worried about things beyond your control? Do they wear you down, exhaust you, and make you sad? If so, render to God the cares that are God's, for He cares for you. What about your anger? Are you irritated by your circumstances? Have you, has life's injustices made you bitter and resentful of God and the people He's put in your path? If so, render to God all that wrath which belongs to him anyway. And experience the peace that he gives that surpasses all understanding. What about your cravings, your desires? Are you addicted to things that lead you astray, that waste your time and hasten your own destruction? If so, render to God your cravings that aren't God's and experience just how much he loves you. Yes, we belong to God because we bear his image. But like the Pharisees and Herodians before us, we have difficulty giving ourselves wholeheartedly to God. That's because the image of God that we bear is a tarnished one. It's been corrupted by sin. Like our father Adam before us, we have all gone astray. We have each chosen 
to go our own way. In fact, we are unable to render to God what is rightfully His. If left to our own devices, we, like the Pharisees and Herodians, would rather marginalize Jesus and put Him out of our lives than submit to Him. We would rather do it our way than give back to God what is rightfully His. But there is another way, one right there in front of us, one that the Pharisees and Herodians apparently could not see, although they got a pretty good glimpse. Notice the last phrase of the verses we're looking at, twelve seventeen. Their response to Jesus' stunning statement, they marveled at him. They marveled at him. What were they marveling at? The one whom they had sought to destroy had just outwitted them, outsmarted them, outmaneuvered them. Well, they were probably marveling at his remarkable wisdom that was on display in that moment. And this is a wisdom that was prophesied about Jesus many years ago. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 12, wrote this prophecy about Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That was on full display. But recognizing the phenomenal wisdom and knowledge of God alone does not rescue us from our predicament. We're still unable to render to God all the things that are God simply by acknowledging Jesus' superior wit and wisdom. There's much more to marvel at. There's much more to be amazed by. Do you see it? Do you see Him for who He really is? Or are you like the Herodians and the Pharisees? The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, explains why the Pharisees and Herodians weren't seeing it. It says there, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. Did you see that there at the very end? Who is the image of God? We're not the only ones who bear the image of God. Jesus does too. But his image is far superior to ours. Our image of God is tarnished. His is pristine. Our image of God is corrupt, but His is perfect. Our image of God is stained by sin. His is pure and blameless. Whose image and inscription is He? Well, He's the spotless image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of His nature. Yet, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was our scripture reading this morning. Yet, he did not stay dead. God raised him up and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places where he always lives to make intercession for us. Oh, do you see it, church? There's so much to marvel at. So much to be grateful for. So much reason to put your trust in this Jesus. And not only that, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, explains what's going on when you put your trust in Jesus. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, and all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Do you see it? Gazing upon Jesus transforms our tarnished image of God into Christ's perfect image of God. At the very end of our story, when the Pharisees and the Herodians marveled at him, did they really see him in this transforming way? Curiously, Mark gives no indication of any further response. For this happens to be the last time that Mark mentions either the Pharisees or Herodians in this gospel. We don't know what became of them. Essentially, for both these groups, it was their end game. But Jesus will go on to willingly die on a cross in a few days. And then three days after that, he'll rise from the dead. And then a few weeks after that, he'll ascend to heaven and send the Holy Spirit and start building his church. And that's where we come in. He's given us a chance to marvel at him in a transforming way. Those of us who are anxious can rest in the fact that we can truly cast all our cares upon him because he is close at hand and will take care of it. Those of us who are angry can rest in the assurance that God will right all wrongs at the proper time and most especially forgive the ones that we ourselves have caused. And for those of us who are caught in the trap of craving bad things, we can discover someone far more desirable, someone who is better than any treasure and worth selling out for. Indeed, someone to love above all else. For this one worth loving is this Jesus. He is the one who has given us the way and the only way to render to God all the things that are God's. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to make a way for us to render to you everything that belongs to you, to make a way for us to be transformed as we gaze upon the beautiful image of your Son. 
We pray, Lord, that those who haven't had that veil removed, that you would remove it and that they would see Jesus for who he really is. They would see him in all his transforming glory, put their faith in him. And for those of us who have seen him and who are in the process of gazing upon him and being transformed from glory to glory, let these words resonate in our heart and encourage us to continue to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.